You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The morning they let us out of the detention centre, they gave us all our possessions. I held mine in a see-through plastic bag. A Collins Gem Pocket English Dictionary, one pair of grey socks, one pair of grey briefs, and one United Kingdom driver's licence that was not mine. Oh, and one water-stained business card that was not mine either. If you want to know, these things belong to a white man called Andrew O'Rourke. I met him on a beach. This small plastic bag is what I was holding in my hand when the detention officer told me to go and stand in the queue for the telephone. The first girl in the queue, she was tall and she was pretty. Her thing was beauty, not talking. I wondered which of us had made the best choice to survive. This girl, she had plucked her eyebrows out and then she had drawn them back on again with a pencil. This is what she had done to save her life. She was wearing a purple dress, an A-line dress with pink stars and moons in the pattern. She had a nice pink scarf wrapped around her hair and purple flip-flops on her feet. I was thinking she must have been locked up a very long time in our detention centre. One has to go through a very great number of the charity boxes, you will understand, to put together this this outfit that is truly an ensemble. On the girl's brown legs there were many small white scars, I was thinking, do those scars cover the whole of you, like the stars and the moons on your dress? I thought that would be pretty too. And I ask you, right here please, to agree with me that a scar is never ugly. That's what the scar makers want us to think. But you and I, we must make an agreement to defy them. We must see all scars as beauty, okay? This will be our secret. Because, take it from me, A scar does not form on the dying. A scar means I survived. In a few breaths' time, I will speak some sad words to you. But you must hear them the same way that we have agreed to see scars now. Sad words are just another beauty. A sad story means this storyteller is alive. And the next thing you know, something fine will happen to her, something marvellous. And then she will turn around and smile. Chris Cleave is a columnist for The Guardian. His first novel, Incendiary, won the 2006 Somerset Maugham Award. His new novel is Little Bee. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you, Rick. It's really great to uh, talk with you again. Chris, your new novel has a very interesting subject at its core, which is the refugee experience. Now, you had spent your childhood in Africa, West Africa. Tell me about that. Six weeks after I was born, my father took a job at a brewery in West Africa, in a country called Cameroon, where we lived in the capital city, Douala, which is on the equator. And it was a very warm place, physically and emotionally. And it, was, it was like living in a hot cloud. It was steamy, you know, very humid. Uh, we had monkeys in the garden, hummingbirds, you know, banana trees. And it was a very warm environment. You know, we were uh, let out into the street with our telephone numbers scrawled across our chests in Biro. You know, wherever we ended up at the end of the day, you know, some mum or dad would, you know, do the right thing and phone up 
to you know to get all the kids collected. You know, it was a very safe, uh, friendly, multicultural environment. Um, there was always music. It was a beautiful, you know, a beautiful place. And I have very warm memories of my childhood. We moved back to the UK when I was seven years old. My dad's job out there was finished. And we moved from this very, you know, emotionally warm place back to London in the middle of the winter where it was snowing. Um, so I, I was taken out of this French-speaking school. It was French Cameroon that we were in into you know, obviously an English-speaking state school in London in the snow. And, you know, it was, it was real profound culture shock. It, I found it very hard to fit in. I found it very hard to understand what this country was that we'd come to that seemed so bitterly cold and unpleasant, you know, emotionally speaking as well as physically. It was very difficult to fit in. I think it's that sense of cultural separation, cultural alienation that I had that's that's come into this new novel. I wouldn't say that I remember West Africa well enough from my childhood to describe it. So the the West Africa in this book it, it is very researched. You know, it's not it's not taken from memory. Um, whereas what I have taken from memory is that real shock of arriving from one culture into another. And that's why I think I really I really warmed to the character of Little B. And although I couldn't understand what a character like her would go through, I think I had an inkling of it from that just amazing sense of shock of being transplanted between cultures when I was a kid. Well, that's fascinating because you, your parents were English, correct? I oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and believe so. it or not, they <laughs> we're probably one of the only English families that, that moved to West Africa for economic reasons. You know, Britain in the... In the 1970s, you know, it was a very poor uh, place. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of um, problems. You know, my my family were very poor. Um, and my dad found a, a really well-paying job there. So we went to Africa. Upon your return, um, how long did it take you to, like, I guess even learn the language? Because you'd been speaking French mostly? Well, we'd been speaking French at school, mm -hmm. but English at home. Um, so I was fine with the language, um, technically speaking. Mm -hmm. um, but there's quite another thing to go into an English school, you know, at the age of seven or eight. And uh, the English that seven or eight-year-old English schoolboys speak is not English English. Uh, it's incredibly vernacular. And so it was as if I didn't speak the language. And... I didn't understand any of the slang. I didn't know what things meant. I was just, to to them, I would have been such an alien. You know, it was really hard to to, to learn how to fit in, to culturally how to speak the language, if you like. Well, that's one of the most interesting things that you talk about in, in this book is the separation of language. Language is one of the, the big themes of this book. And you have this really interesting concept of what you call tales. Hmm? Could you talk about where that concept comes from and maybe how it reflects back on some of your own experiences as a child? Sure. Um, the um, I find that language is something that a culture defends really rigorously. Um, whenever you get a small group, they start to have a, an in slang and you belong to that group if, if you know the specialized vocabulary that they use. Nations are no different. I learned um, in researching this book, really, that um, 
English English is a very different English from Nigerian English, which, you know, English is the official language of Nigeria, but they um, speak it very differently. It's, if you like, it's English plus, and it's English plus um, an extra 5,000 words of vocabulary and, and a set of very rich idioms. You know, Jamaican English as well, I needed to research for this book. It's completely different. And just in, you know, in terms of grammatical structure, the order in which you start constructing a sentence, totally different. And I became really interested in this idea of needing to learn a language, you know, this profound sense, um, in order to fit in with a group. And you, you literally talk your way into things. Uh, and I, I find this fascinating, you, the way people persuade each other of their right to do something, not by rationally arguing it out, but just by adopting the right register in which to tell their tale in order to narrate themselves in, into life. And th that's really what I wanted to explore, the power of language to, to open a door for you. Well, one of the things your uh, character, Little B, says that's just as really striking is that how important stories are to her and her culture. And could you tell me, how did you research the Nigerian culture to, to get these kind of insights? Because when we see things through Little B's eyes, it really feels like there's this really interesting filter, and, and, and we get to see the world, and it's reinvented for us. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love this, to take, um, uh, to take a narrator who is absolutely alien um, and to bring them into a setting that to me is quite familiar. For example, you know, modern European society. Uh, but if you view it with a set of completely fresh eyes, it, it suddenly seems well, everything seems open to argument. You know, the way we do things. If we've done it for a thousand years, it doesn't necessarily mean it makes any sense at all. Um, so, I I really liked having a narrator who was, you know, that could could have been from another planet, and. It, it was really interesting to research where she came from in order to get that right. I guess there's three aspects to, you know, how I went about exploring her character. And the first thing was really just to listen. One of the things I like to do as a writer is to get speech patterns absolutely right. Because as, as we've discussed, I think that defines someone, mm -hmm. you know, more than their ethnicity, you know, more than their gender, more than their profession. You know, I think the way people express themselves um, is the key to them. So I listen a lot. Um, how do I do that? I, I, um, one of the great things about living in London um, is that just down the road, there, there's a big Nigerian community. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you want to know, you know what, the, what the sunrise looks like in Abuja, um, you can just go down to South London and ask someone. Um, and, and if you listen carefully, not only will they give you the information, but the way in which they express it will will unlock a lot about the culture. I just learned, you know, just the wonderful sense of humor that's that's built into the culture. Um, I, I My favorite example is um, the, the many uh, words that there are in uh, Nigerian English for um, for bandits and baddies. Uh, and um, you know, general sort of inhabitants of the night, you know, uh, prostitute in uh, in Nigerian English, you can say night fighter, and um, I love that this expression. <laughs> yeah, there's there's um there's a bunch of them, and I, was, uh, I start you know the the seed of Little B's characters comes from picking out 
these expressions and thinking what they say about I don't know just I think the big heartedness of the culture that mm-hmm. that generates them. So there's a lot of listening to to people, a lot of listening over the internet. Actually, um, one of the amazing things about being a writer now with the internet is you can listen to talk radio stations from anywhere in the world. So you listen to sure, Nigerian yeah. talk radio, Nigerian talk radio from wow. Abuja and from Port Harcourt, and you know it turns out that talk radio is the same everywhere in the world. So people, <laughs> you know, phoning in to. Um, to discuss what's happening in their town, to complain about taxes, and to talk about whatever the gossip is in the news. You know. And uh, you can really tune in you know, by listening endlessly to speech patterns. It really comes to you. So I think, yeah, part one of the character was um, researching the, by listening. Part two was um, just learning a bit about Nigeria as a country, which turns out to be an incredible place. I mean, it's a very civilized country. It's a federalized republic. It's a democracy with problems. But, you know, <laughs> the, the United Kingdom is a democracy with problems yeah, as well. well so right? is so, the United States. <laughs> sure. um, so one of its big problems in Nigeria is that the southern region, the delta area of Nigeria, is pretty much a, a contested space. Uh, they discovered oil there in the 1960s. And Nigeria now, I mean, a lot of people don't know this. Nigeria is the eighth largest exporter of petroleum in the world. I mean, it's it's huge. And whenever there's oil, there's conflict. So in the south of Nigeria, um, there are Western oil interests. There are tribal rivalries. Um, there are, you know, language barriers as well. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a really heady mix of trouble. Because there's a lot of different... Uh, languages between the tribes. They speak different languages yep, yep, in addition speak, to English. Yeah, exactly. English is the official language, mm-hmm. um, but there's lots of ethnicities and languages in, in that area. And, of course, it has a big history of conflict, you know, since the Biafran War there. Mm-hmm. Um, things haven't completely settled down. And so you've got this interesting mix of a country, Nigeria, which is very uh, civilized, very sophisticated in the north, has a great university in Abuja, um, but then down in the south, Absolute chaos. Um, and Nigeria turns out to be, you know, the second biggest um, exporter of um, asylum seekers to the United Kingdom because of these difficulties. So researched a lot about um, Nigeria. And I guess the final bit of getting into Little B's character was listening to a lot of refugee stories um, from, from Nigerian refugees and from other um, parts of the world. Just Did you listening to how they start. No, um, I, I talked. I talked with people. Um, people were very funny about um, me uh, taping interviews. I, I tried to be just quite respectful to write mm-hmm. things down, to uh, not release names. You know, to to really try and protect um, people I was talking with. And I also listened to a lot of um, transcript. Um, sorry, a lot a lot of recorded interview and read a lot of transcript of interviews with refugees and asylum seekers that comes from a lot of the amazing sort of support organizations that exist in the United Kingdom for asylum seekers. So it was those sort of three aspects that led to her voice coming through. When you started writing this book, I, I did you just like launch into this voice? I, I, I want to get a kind of an idea of your process because it seems um, it's really beautifully written and seems very, very tight. Did, did you like just start writing it or did you have an idea of what you were going to talk about in the plot? 
Sure, that's a really good question. <laughs> I I um I started exactly in the middle of the book, um, and worked out out in both directions. And the the way I write is is a total mess. I wish I could, I wish I knew in advance what my books are going to be about. I I start in the middle. I get a voice. I get a character, and. You know, Little B's character just started to seem so strong that I needed to work out her story as I told it. And so I worked backwards and forwards through the book. And by the time I turned something in, you know, it, it, it's the 10th draft. You know, I've been over every sentence 15 times. And uh, I, th I think the trick is to, to make it feel smooth on the page and try not, I guess, sometimes not to overly complicate it. Well, one of the it's very, very simple and clear. It's easy to read. It's it's really quite beautifully written and constructed. And um, but I wanted to get back a little bit to the to the refugees. And one of the things you describe are the detention centers. Mm. And in the back of the book, they call it a that they say that you visited a British concentration camp. Yeah, and <laughs> I use the term advisedly. Um, I'm I'm aware of. Um, the connotations that the term concentration camp has, and I I use the word um, because I think it concentrates attention wonderfully. Um, the what what we do in the United Kingdom um, with a certain proportion of the asylum seekers that we have is that we do intern them. Um, this happened about a dozen years ago that we started doing this. Prior to that, asylum seekers were dispersed in the general population, and now what they um, what happens is that they're um, detained in these centres, which are now called immigration removal centres, and they they correspond to the textbook definition of a concentration camp, which is that you take a um, a subset of the population, which is distributed throughout the general population, and you concentrate them in one place for ease of processing. You know, th these aren't people who've committed a crime, right? It's different from a prison. Sure, um, sure. I don't know. So if you don't call it a concentration camp, you have to struggle to <laughs> to talk about what it is. And um, and I think that the term is shocking. And I think that um, draws attention quite wonderfully to the fact that the, the treatment of these people is shocking. They're, they're asylum seekers. They're people that have gone through hell. Um, and they're coming to a country and applying for asylum, which they're legally entitled to do. And yet we treat them in a way that, you know, we wouldn't treat animals. So I, um, I mean, that, that was the, the motive for writing the book, because I, I just could not believe that this was happening in my country. Well, how, how, did, it, how did you stumble across this, or, or, or what made you, how did you discover this? Completely by accident. Um, I was at university. I was working. I was doing a summer job. Um, I signed on uh, as a casual labourer, and one morning uh, they took us to a muster point where we got into a minibus, drove out through the Oxfordshire countryside, uh, through a perimeter fence, and then through another perimeter fence. You know, these are razor wire fences, very high security place. And it turned out that we'd arrived in this place called Campsfield House um, Detention Centre for asylum seekers. Now, there are people at the time who lived three miles away from this facility who didn't know that it existed and didn't know what it was for. Um, these are places that are really shrouded in secrecy, and it just so happened that I, I ended up working there for three days, working in the canteen, um, serving 
really quite awful food to asylum seekers. So I got to meet these people from Somalia, from Sierra Leone, from Nigeria, um, from the Balkans conflict at that time, um, because this would have been uh, 93, summer of 93. And uh, I met all of these people and I slowly worked out what they had in common <laughs> because a lot of them didn't know. They didn't know what kind of facility they were in. A lot of them didn't speak English. You know. And the conditions in that place were absolutely horrific. And some of the things that I've discovered about these places, I mean, um, there was one of these centers where if you wanted to, um, if you had a headache, I mean, you could apply for a paracetamol or an aspirin, um, but you had to do it 24 hours in advance and in writing. You know, you have to you have to predict that you're going to have a headache, right? Um, and that that's just a small example of what, on a large scale, is a system designed to bully and humiliate these people into into acquiescence. And um, I, I was shocked that it existed. And when I spoke with my friends when this job was over, you know, three days in, um, that was the end of the job. I talked with people, and none of my friends knew that this place existed. None of my friends knew that asylum seekers in the United Kingdom were treated this way now. I because, sure didn't. No, right. <laughs> People don't because we have this image of an asylum seeker, I guess, as, as quite a heroic figure, right? I mean, after um, during the Cold War, an asylum seeker was was a glamorous and heroic figure who'd, who'd got across the Berlin Wall, right? And sure, who'd, um, sure. Uh, and they kind were likely to be a scientist or someone that we needed or, you know, <laughs> a, a ballet dancer. And... Uh, uh, and, you know, these people are no, no different. They're fleeing from persecution. And yet um, there, there's no glamour attached to them anymore. And, in fact, they're treated you know, worse than animals now. Um, they, don't, they, they have very few rights. They're not looked after in a dignified way. And these are people who are extremely vulnerable and have come from places where they've gone through unimaginable things. And I felt that you know, as as a civilized society, well, we should be strong enough and comfortable enough within ourselves to help these people, and and that's what everyone assumes is happening. You know, I was uh, I was really shocked to discover that it wasn't. Really shocked, and um, well, shocked enough to write a book about it. Now, in in uh, the novel, little B is in that center for two years. Do these people ever get out? I mean, it seems that's a long time for processing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a jail like that. That's right. It is. It's a long time when you don't know when your release date is. Uh, it's a long time to be detained indefinitely. Um, I've read cases of people who've been in those places for five years um, pending a decision um, on their asylum application. Uh, they never have a day in court. Their decisions on their lives are made in in private um, by civil servants. There's there's no jury. Um, there's a right of appeal, but it's it's not always a particularly effective process. It sounds like Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not for yeah. It wouldn't be for me to to draw the parallel, and I'm 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 not. Uh, there's no sort of inferred. Um, application of what I've talked about in the book to any other um, civilization. I mean, all, I, all mm -hmm. I've researched is the United Kingdom. Um, but um, it is true that most of the countries um, th where I've now talked with people following the publication of this book have, have their own issues with human rights and with a, with a sector of, the, of their population 
who who don't have the same rights as everyone else. And I, I, I find that really interesting. I find that to be um, a symptom of cultures that are that are worried about their own sense of identity and are worried about their um, ability to you know continue to be strong and cohesive. I I, I worry that you know I, I mean I'm just talking about the United Kingdom here, mm-hmm. uh, but I was always brought up to think that we were a strong and decent people who would um, do things fairly, and. We really don't have that much else going for us, right? It <laughs> rains all the time. Uh, it's a very small island. It's pretty overcrowded. I and mean, one of the things that we've got going for us is, is this sense of fairness. And I think that's why I get very exercised when you know I see unfairness on such a large scale. Um, operating behind closed doors as well it just doesn't seem very British. Well, for all the you know, unfairness and unhappiness that kind of infuses this book. It's very funny. (laughs) And it's kind of a light read. I mean, it's pithy, and what you say is really important and well said, but it's a lot of fun to read. Could you talk about infusing (laughs) these kind of uh, often very horrific situations that will practically make the reader want to burst out into tears if you're not already burst out into laughter, which is very confusing to the reader, but it's still very <laughs> sure. enjoyable. <laughs> sure. I am uh, I'm convinced, especially after having met a lot of these um, people who, who've, you know, who've suffered uh, horrible things, that one of the things that's got them through it is a sense of dignity, a sense of self-worth, um, once you've taken everything else away from someone, you've taken their home. You've, in many cases, you've taken their family and quite brutally, you've taken their country, you've taken their passport, for goodness sake, and they've got nothing, no work permit even. Um, pretty much the only thing they have left, you know, the people who survive, is a sense of humour to get them through it. Some of these people can be you know, very, very funny. And that really struck me, that... Um, the fact that you know tra- tragedy and comedy often coexist. Often, the the most awful things can happen in a way that's at some level quite ridiculous, quite funny. Um, and I thought that I would try to to bring those two p- things together, to bring comedy and tragedy together, not just into the same story, but into the same sentence, so that. Um, your you know one's understanding um, for me as a as a writer or as a reader you're discovering as you go whether you're going to find this funny or sad and it's quite it's it's a nervy feeling it kind of keeps you on the edge of the story the whole time um and it certainly it certainly kept me locked into it when i was writing well that's a that's really interesting so what you're saying is that you use this kind of balance between humor and horror and we'll talk about horror because you have a very interesting discursion on that um to as a as a plot driver sure. in ways that's yeah. really interesting i mean i um i think it helps uh, me as a writer and the reader as a reader to to stay engaged with a subject that's that can be one of two things it can be so horrific that you don't want to look or it can be so big that you don't want to look. I mean, um, immigration is a subject that's talked about endlessly in in the media and and this big sort of statistical level. This is how many immigrants there are. Um, 
this is you know what our what our policy is towards them but uh, it's so big and it's so inhuman that our eyes kind of glaze over uh, whereas if you can take one human life out of that and exemplify that whole refugee crisis in the life of one person and if you can make it funny then suddenly you know the the me as a writer or the reader um as a reader can look at that again and see it for what it is and so i really use the the, the humor to make it to make it bearable to make the pill swallowable because once you do you realize that this is is a big and fascinating story you know immigration you know it is the big story in town that's what's happening in our world we live in a time when populations are moving around the globe as they never have before and i wanted to find a way to write about it that that was exciting you know that makes real life thrilling again well, one of the things you talked about earlier was that you started the novel in the middle of the novel and kind of wrote out and i think that what that does when you read the novel from beginning to end it gives you this really great sense that and this has to do with with strictly just the the plotting of the novel the way you reveal the plot for a really interesting storytelling style um because it's like we're you're eating something with a a chocolate center but you don't know what that chocolate center <laughs> is <laughs> right yeah um i uh i disguise it from myself when i'm writing i try to make these characters that are so strong and so compelling um and so so realistic right i mean i really i like the idea that you could you know you could scratch them and they'd bleed you know there's something to them um i like to make the characters so strong in my head in terms of their voice just their their voice their speech pattern the way they are you know the way their language defines them that that then i can put them into a situation not knowing what they'll do right so i make these characters and i make um these situations the thing i do right is to put ordinary people into extraordinary situations and i just ask through these characters the question you know what would you do you know what would you do if someone says how much of your comfortable life will you give up in order to help me um how much will you give up and that's the question at the heart of this book and i i don't know the answer and i force myself to not know the answer when i'm writing um and and guess what you know i still don't know the answer and my, my but the the characters um work off each other they they i don't know, this this is how my writing process works i don't know what's going to happen i'm on the edge of my seat when i'm writing it and um and and when i finish it i just ask myself well what what would i have done <laughs> because i i feel i don't feel like i've controlled the process of the novel i feel that i i've been a witness to it taking place um and at the end i ask myself well would i have made the very strong moral choice for example that sarah the english woman makes um in the novel when i mean she she is asked to to do something i mean i don't want to give the plot away but she's asked to do something unspeakably difficult to do in order to save little b's life she's she's faced with a huge dilemma there and and in that situation she's extremely strong um there's another character in the book uh Lawrence a civil servant who's very much an an insider he's part of um a big system but as a man he doesn't have much of a strong character himself and when he is tested you know he he's often found wanting 
And so as, as a writer, I'm fascinated by these two characters and I don't know which I would be. You know, I've never been tested. I've had a very lucky, uh, charmed life in many respects. And I don't know what would happen when my philosophy, when my ideology, you know, collided head on with reality that strongly. I don't know whether I would be a Lawrence or whether I would be a Sarah. And I, I guess, you know, to, to, to your question, you know, that the reader doesn't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think that's because I don't know what's going to happen when I start these projects off. I just don't, I don't know. And I, and I, I end, I finished them. The book's published, it's in the stores, and I still, I don't know what I would do. I've been speaking with Chris Cleave. His new book is Little Bee. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.